Good morning. I'm reading today from John chapter 6, verses 35 to 48. You can find it in uh, the following Jesus Bible on page 1148 and in your pew Bibles on page 892. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will, with, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from, this, from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, uh, if you weren't watching Facebook this week, you may not know, I was in Detroit all week um, for the EPC's General Assembly. I got there Monday, and I got back yesterday. And so I am blessed to have ruling elders in our body who know uh, how to rightly divide the word of truth. And so I'd like to invite Todd Fernandez to come forward uh, to preach this morning. And I'm going to be joining the children in children's worship. So all the little ones, first grade and under, y'all can uh, follow me and Mr. Jonathan over to children's worship. And Todd, you got up from here, brother. One, two, check, one, two. The mic on. The light's on. Hello, hello. How about now? Excellent. When we were walking in, I asked... My kids, aren't you excited that dad is doing the sermon today? And Madeline said, yeah, right. We hear you preach all the time. So uh, at least some of you don't have to hear that all the time. But uh, Madeline's embarrassed now. That's okay. You know, you shouldn't have said that. You know, I'm going to get you. So when we compare things, we can use simile, analogy, or metaphor. And today we have before us a metaphor. And if you don't know what a metaphor is, that's okay. Just know that it serves here to remind us of uh, John's purpose 
that we constantly hearken back to, which is that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you, we, may have life in his name. John twenty thirty one. Now, I wonder why John doesn't just say, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, Son of God, have life in his name. And why does he add this second part? And that by believing, you have life in his name. Why do you think he phrases it like that? Well, I think it's at least possible that he's being careful to avoid the idea that belief is an end in and of itself. And that saving faith is more than just believing the right things and being orthodox. The Apostle James addresses this in 2.19 in his epistle. He says, You may believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So by his account, you have an exhausted knowledge of Christ. You have the faith of a demon, if that's all you've got, right? Now in today's passage, like James, John is concerned with not simply the object of faith, which is Jesus Christ as presented in the Gospels, but also something of how faith works. Who is to be praised? Who's doing the work? What is our role? What is God's role? The first thing I want to go over in the text is, if you can believe it, the first line. Because I notice when I come right to 35 and I read it, I say it like this. I say, I am the bread of life. And it sounds like this kind of spontaneous declaration. But what happens here, it's actually pointing uh, out the obvious after kind of a testy Q&A session with the disciples. And I want to get a quick recap of that context. I want to capture this. So the day before Jesus has performed, and and we've been going through John, he performs the miracle with the loaves, the 5,000 from five loaves and two fish. And it's an event so wondrous that they try to force him king. So he flees, and they find him the next day, and they say, Rabbi, why did you come here? And Jesus immediately calls him out. He, he seems to have knowledge of their true motives. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. He knows they're not looking for him for any reason but physical appetite. Or as Jason recently uh, posited, bread and circuses. They're entertained. And on top of that, they totally missed what the sign of the loaves was pointing to. But he doesn't leave them in this awkward position. He replies with good instruction. He says, do not work for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. So while he rebukes them for their sort of shallow focus on the temporal... He gives them some good advice as well. Not that the physical isn't necessary and important, but the sign was about something eternal. In spite of his attempt to cause a a, a shift in focus here from the finite to the infinite, their hearts remain on bread. So they ask the next most natural question. They said, "What what must we do to be doing the works of God? Now, this question is essentially an asking for power. Uh, Tell us what to do to make the bread happen. And 
And there's lots of prosperity preachers who are willing to do this. You know, here's the good news. God will grant you all your wishes if you do A, and usually it's tithe, right? Or send some money with your, you know, your hands on the screen. Or... And what this does is this puts man above God to do his bidding, and, and it's kind of this cause and effect relationship with God. And man becomes the puppeteer, if you will, you know. And, and in this case, they're say, saying, you know, tell us what to do to make you make the loaves for us. And he puts him back on track again in verse 29. He answered them, this is the work. Not the, notice, not the works. This is the work of God. Counter to their, you know, singular, counter to their, to their plural. That you believe in him who he has sent. And the answer is, uh, you might think, similar to that uh, given to the jailer in Acts 16.30. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Jesus is telling them that this eternal blessing comes not by religious works, but by faith. And I think they take this to mean that they must first affirm that he is, uh, by believing, a credentialed prophet of the Old Testament sort. Probably the one mentioned that would come after Moses, the great prophet. But in any case... Their minds are still on food. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? And in a sense, they're bargaining with him. Okay, we'll believe in you if that's what you want. But maybe you are the great prophet, but we're going to need more proof. What happened yesterday was yesterday. We have the right to some more magic here if you want us to believe in you. So the next part is uh, kind of funny. It's a really poor job of them trying to take a, a, an angle you know, they say, uh, you know, perform the signs. And hey, uh, speaking of signs, I just thought of something. Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. Hint, hint, nudge, nudge. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So these guys are extremely desperate for something to snack on. And now they're using scripture from Psalm 78. Now we'll give them a small break, okay? Because we're, we're thinking about this bread as moderns. And bread's not a big deal to us, right? We have, uh, some of us don't even eat bread. And we have low-carb diets and, and this kind of thing. Uh, if you're really a Christian, you know, like me, you eat Ezekiel bread. Have you seen Ezekiel bread? It's in the frozen section. No pun intended. You Presbyterians out there. You Calvinists. A lot of, lot of laughs. Um, you know, funny thing about Ezekiel bread, actually, uh, is there's a Bible verse on it, and it's from Ezekiel. Take millet and all this thing and flourless bread. But, uh, you know, I went home, and I looked in the Bible, and I kept reading it. It's cooked over dung. So uh, give you some pause there, that Ezekiel bread. But in any event, moderns, we're not, we don't get that excited about food. Uh, but back then, the average income, 85% of it went to food. So you can imagine if this guru comes along and is supplying with you with 85% of your income miraculously, okay? So to them, bread is a big deal. Now, Jesus has to correct their exegesis nonetheless. That means their interpretation of the Scripture. It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. Moses didn't give you anything. It was God who gave you the bread. And he says, 
But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven, or God gives you something better than he gave them. God gives you the real manna. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The dialogue's kind of starting to manifest itself here. The bread's no longer something that Jesus provides. It maybe even sounds like a person somehow. And the people respond like the woman at the well. Sir, give me this water. It's like when I'm on a sales call. You know, I create the demand. Ah, give me. I'm ready to buy. They say, give us this bread always. And um, this is kind of like when your sunglasses are on your head and you ask somebody, where are your sunglasses? He says, I am the bread of life. Right? Now we kind of get the context. Or maybe he's like, I am the bread of life. Something like that. This is a, a reply. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So now we have our context. It's me, people. What Jesus has just declared is that the manna they referenced in the Old Testament is all about him. And it was always about him. And to the Jew... This is an extravagant claim that goes well beyond the fulfillment of manna. These are not biblically ignorant people. They could uh, start to think about the Bible and they could look at the bread and Passover. They could uh, look at prophecy about bread from Isaiah. They could look at the showbread in the temple and realize he's implying something major here. But let's look at what it means Uh, just him identifying himself with the manna from heaven. They brought the manna up as referenced in Psalm 78. You can read that after church, which ironically is all about Israel demanding signs and failing in the wilderness. But why did God provide manna? That's the question we ask. Why did God provide the manna? Well, let's go to Deuteronomy 8.3 and ask why he provided manna in the first place. Deuteronomy 8.3. He humbled you, and in your hunger... He gave you manna to eat, which neither you nor your fathers had known, so that, and this is why, you might understand that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So just like the sign of the loaves, manna was never for manna's sake. Manna was an expression of the fact that man was to be daily dependent upon God, that ultimately he lived on God's word or God's law for the Old Testament Israelite. The manna was a symbol of the daily feeding on the words of God. So, if the manna points to God's word, and Jesus says, I am the true manna, then what's he saying about himself? And think about the prologue. In the beginning was the word. Jesus saying, I am the word. The word was with God. The word was God. I'm the Logos. So see how this is all coming together with his claim about the manna. He says that he's the bread that has come down from heaven. And that's another way of saying the word has become flesh and is dwelling among you. And we can appreciate the gravity of the claim. as the uh, It's kind of like the hero of the story is revealing his identity in John. And secondly, Jesus presents himself as the object of saving faith. He who comes to me... He who believes in me shall never hunger or thirst. Now, 
I said the hero is revealing his identity. We know from all our childhood stories that when the king returns, there's both restoration and then there's also judgment. Not everyone is happy. Some are celebrating. But Jesus says, But I said to you that you've seen me and yet do not believe. Things are not going well in terms of what we might call uh, evangelistic success here. And Jesus does something very curious. Um, and this was uh, probably the big question for me and the or thing that I thought about the most in expositing this text. Because he totally departs from the metaphor and he goes off into this theological explanation about the nature of belief. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So it's like he stops the attempt to persuade his listeners and just starts praising confidence in the redemptive plans of the Father. In other words, things start to go south, and Jesus steps back from the dialogue, and he publicly recognizes that the success of my mission does not depend on your response at all. Because all that the Father gives me will believe in me. And once they believe in me, they will never be separated from me. Jesus expounds on this, and starting in 38. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Again, like the manna, he's come down from heaven. He's not a creature. He's the word. And the reason that he never loses these people that come to him is because it's God's will. And this is the, also part of his humility, doing the will of the Father. Uh, flesh incarnate. It's God's will that there's a body of believers out there whom he gives to the Son, and it's his will that they never be lost. And notice there's no real talk about man's will here. Now, the way his hearers react is also interesting. In 41, the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? So notice what they grumble about. It's not the predestination sounding talk, right? They're upset about the manna claim. They want to challenge the bread metaphor. What's important to them, and I think it's interesting that modern man, we read this, we get all bent out of shape about... uh, God giving people to the Son and <laughs> never uh, the Son doesn't lose anyone. Um, but the Jewish uh, crowd here is more concerned about the claims to deity. And uh, we, we read this and we say, ah, yeah, bread, the bread metaphor, that's great. But when he peels off into this next line, this is where A lot of people within the church get uncomfortable. Um, He, instead of addressing their denial about the bread metaphor, he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. 
He doubles down. So, you know, this reminds me of one of those Broadway plays where the, the two groups are singing about different things at the same time, but it's all kind of working together, you know. They're, uh, they're, they're all worried about the bread, and uh, Jesus is busy telling us about the nature of belief. Now, they're busy rejecting Logos, right? And I say telling us because, um, again, they don't seem to be paying much uh, attention to the doctrines of grace. And maybe they just already have this robust understanding of God's sovereignty, um, you know, as did the Greeks. You know, if you read Greek myth, uh, there's a lot about fate and, and the gods and so on. So man back then, a little different thinking than we have now. We're more worried about freedom and, and our rights, and Americans, right? So, um, but their grumbling's aimed at him being the object of their religion. Now, Jesus wants to know that there is at least something no person can do on their own, namely, come to Jesus, right? Uh, Jesus has already used the word come several times as synonymous with faith, with saving faith. 35, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Verse 45, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So it doesn't mean walking up to him. It means belief. A person cannot come to Jesus unless the Father draws him. Now let's talk about this word, draw. Jason was uh, originally going to preach this sermon, and um, so he gave me his notes. And, you know, Jason knows Greek, so that's a great benefit. And the language in the Greek to English translation is actually rather weak. This word draw is better understood as something like compel. Um, Now what what uh, is interesting is that this same word is used in Acts 21.30 when Paul is seized and dragged out of the temple into prison. So this is a stronger word than draw. What happens when we put the word in draw in English, you know, we kind of get a, a double translation happening where we say woo, he's wooing, wooing, you know. Not only you as a guy, I don't like being wooed, but uh, I think, you know, I can take, I can take draw. I did hear a funny, uh, R.C. Sproul say something. He was having a debate with someone, and the guy that he was debating pointed out that this word draw is actually in a secular Greek text as drawing water from a well. So it's not necessarily always compel. And R.C. said, ah, oh, well, you got me there. I, I did not know that. Okay. You know, I, I accept that. Uh, I didn't know it existed in this secular Greek text. But let's me, let me ask you a question. When you do go to the well and you stand over the well, do you lean over and say, Here, water, water, water? Come up, water? Or do you draw the water out the well? And I thought that was a good uh, little story. But now luckily we also have Jesus' explanation of just what kind of drawing God is doing in this next verse. In verse 45, it says, It is written by the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Now, the Father compels belief, but uh, he doesn't say by dragging someone to prison, or he also doesn't say by wooing. But Jesus says it's best described as this teaching, as the fulfillment of this Old Testament promise in Isaiah 54, 13. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. So the flesh is no help at all. There is something here that can't be produced by men. 
When God does this drawing or this teaching in the heart, we don't just get historical information. We're somehow illumined such that it changes our disposition. And this is an act of God. It's only then we're able to come or able to believe. And this is just unpacking that second half of John's purpose statement. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. And for the record, clearly there is some mystery here. For example, all Christians are stuck with the question, why me? Why did I get saved and not my neighbor? We're told in few words in Romans that that's not our domain. Uh, We're just told to seek the king's domain. That is the king and his dom, his kingdom. So, I do want to get into how uh, knowing the sort of mechanics of salvation helps us believers. And I think it does help in some important ways. And I think typical someone to, to uh, we, we often hear, hey, we, we can have such confidence, you know, in God's sovereignty. And that's true. That's true. But uh, the next obvious question in the back of uh, people's minds is, well, yeah, but how do I know, you know, I'm in, right? Um, So let's talk about that. We emphasize the evangelistic parts about John, but it is also edifying. It's also instructional. And today we heard something of this paradox that saving faith is easy and as natural as eating bread, and all are invited to partake. We saw these children uh, come up here and get baptized the other day, take communion. God says, that's how you come, right? It's as easy and as natural as eating bread. Yet, on the other hand, it's impossible to obtain or even take one step in the right direction without God the Father. Let's look at this from an instructional perspective. Since we're not commanded to solve the mystery, let's look at what we are commanded to do in light of these truths. First of all, like Jesus, we strive to invite people by humbly preaching the gospel, no matter the results. It's just like him. The results are not up to us. Um, We please God when we preach the gospel and we please him when we do it well. So I I do want to say this doesn't mean that uh, you go out there and you be obnoxious you know, uh, hey, tag your it, give you the gospel, Coom, got you, you know, <laughs> you're, <laughs> you, uh, it's okay to work on your gospel presentation. It's okay to um, look back and say, hey, how was the quality of that conversation? You know, how can I do better? Um, but it's ultimately not dependent upon you. It's entirely dependent upon the sovereign will of the Father. And that's why we emphasize prayer at FPC so much. Uh, that our efforts are pleasing to God. We, you know, we preach with that humility of Christ, the will of the Father. What about uh, edification? In reference to the metaphor, we might say to the Christian, you are what you eat. We're reminded that God's word is food for the believer, and Christ is the word in the flesh. Like Ezekiel, we eat the scroll. It nourishes us. It becomes part of us. You know, words in the Old Testament are curious things. 
Um, they edify us. We're conformed by them more and more to Christ. You know, and this may be the most important part of the sermon right here. Um, what about pride, okay? In Jesus' explanation of saving faith, we are stripped of any pride in our salvation. You know, pride is what got us cast out. And pride is what will keep you out. Pride is any attempt, any suggestion, any wishing to include oneself as a co-recipient of glory that belongs to the Father. That's what pride is. And you think about that definition. I can't remember where I got it. I may have made it up. But um, we find all kinds of ways to creep pride in. A little bit of self-righteousness into the complete saving work of Christ. And uh, Reformed people, it's not just a Catholic thing. This is not just a Catholic thing. I know we like to, to pick on the works by salvation. We, we find ways to do it as well. You know, I actually found a little rhyme to uh, help me remember this. And that, uh, you know, um, I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't say the poem. It's kind of uh, offensive. You want to hear it? Okay. All right. Well, this is, let me break it down real quick. So, you know, the, the Romanists, the Catholics, where they fall, fall into error, they're saved by participation, okay? Now, the evangelicals, well, let me say the poem. Romanists are saved by participation. Evangelicals are saved by incantation. Reformed are saved by explanation. But no matter the denomination, it's by grace. Through faith in Christ alone that lies salvation. Okay? Oh, yeah. All right. All right. Well, I'm glad I said it now. And, you know, uh, just so you get it, the, uh, the incantation is when, you know, in the evangelicals, they tend to reduce the works of Christ to one work. You know, I'm, I'm free from works, but I got this one work. I said the prayer, right? The incant, I did the spell. I cast the spell in my life. Now I do whatever I want. And the reformed, they say, well, I know. I, God, they stand before God. And he says, why should I let you? And he says, I'll show you why. Jesus, you stand over there. Bring in the blackboard. I can explain uh, salvation, you know, from A to Z. I've got propitiation, expiation, da, da, da. That's why you should let me in. So we all try to work in a little self-righteousness, Right? And I think this is, that's the biggest lesson of this. You know, don't have, don't try not to, try to get rid of that pride in your salvation. And finally, underneath these instructions and these teachings, there is this big invitation, this implicit invitation underneath the whole thing. Don't work for food that perishes. Even the non-believer wants to hear this. You have an eternal soul. You know, you're more than one of these identity politic labels, you can't satisfy the hunger of an eternal soul with finite food. Only the bread of life, which is before you, can satisfy that. And you feed on Christ by believing. You believe by coming, so come. 
And we asked earlier, well, how do I know the Father has drawn me to come? You know, I don't, know, I don't, I don't know if that question really helps. Why don't you just stop worrying about it and come? This metaphor and the warning about unbelief is to eliminate any pretensions, not create new ones. There's nothing you can do by works of self-preparation, by, you know, getting the right emotion. You have nothing to offer Jesus in exchange for his free gift of salvation. You know, and some may disagree with this, but I would go so far as to say, hey, if you're uncertain, just start following Christ anyway. You know, just start, just start doing Christianity and see what happens. You know, I say with the disciples, they're, they're, they, this, this dialogue gets more and more heated. Everybody leaves. And they're going to like, what? you want to go too? Where else are we going to go? This is the only plausible explanation out there, guys. All the big answers in life. This is, the, this is you might be not sure, you might have doubt, but where else are you going to go? Nothing else even comes close to making sense, believe me. I've read all the philosophical possibilities you can imagine. So to whom shall we go? All right, so we're at the end. We'll stop at verse 47. Since Jesus returns to the center of this teaching, albeit, it, albeit with, with more assertiveness, and as, as like I said, you go home and you continue reading this language, it gets stronger and it gets stronger until people just leave. But the metaphor is established in 35. By coming, one eats. And by believing, one drinks. And that sums it all up. So we'll end here. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Let's pray. Father, I pray that our faith in Christ may be like that of the children. As natural as eating bread, that we all continue to feed on Christ, be nourished, bear fruit. And I pray also that you would Disarm us of any pride, giving all glory to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.